0: You're listening to The True Crime Fix Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Season 4 and Episode 41 of The True Crime Fix Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show so far then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. I would also like to welcome Karen to the True Crime Fix Patreon family. I really appreciate the support. If you want to join Karen and support the show, then please come over to www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. So what's this season going to be about? I'm going to examine four of the most notorious attacks which have occurred in the last 15 years and look into them from the perspective of the victims, both deceased and the survivors. I had in mind three cases that I wanted to do and I put it out to the Patreon subscribers to vote on the fourth and out of the three options they chose this one, so thank you for your input. So going forward, I'll be looking at the cases chronologically, starting over the next few episodes with the London attacks of the 7th of July 2005, then going on to the Paris attacks of 2015, Manchester Arena bombings of 2017, and the Christchurch attack of 2019. Before we go any further, to allay the fears of anyone listening when they hear those four cities, This is not going to be a podcast series about religion, fundamentalism or extremism and I'm going to try to avoid throwing the T word about as best as I can. This is going to be about what happened and how the people were affected by what happened. Just to let you know that this will be part one of a multi-part case. I cannot be more specific than that as I'm still writing about the incident as I record this episode because there's an awful lot to cover. The scheduling for this season will be a new part will be released every other Tuesday on Patreon, and then every other Friday on the normal feed, until a case is finished, then we'll take a week break before the next case starts. I want to do these stories justice, and they're a lot bigger than I first thought. I will, however, not back down from a challenge. So just before we go on, I just want to share a personal story with you. I try to avoid anything personal in this podcast, because in my head, all I hear is you saying, come on Steve, get to the point. But anyway, here goes. Those of you that are regulars to the True Crime Fix discussion page on Facebook will be aware of one of my moderators, Stuart Bow. Me and Stuart, or Egg as he's affectionately going to be known for the remainder of this story, have been friends for 18 years next year and we went to university together at Buckinghamshire Chiltern University College. On the 8th of July 2005, we were booked on a holiday with four other friends at the time to go to the town of Callum Porter in Menorca. Ed comes from Market Deeping in Lincolnshire and he had a friend visiting him that week. On the 6th of July, Just like most nights that I stayed in his student house, the evening consisted of a lot of beer and playing Guitar Hero on the PlayStation until the early hours of the morning. We knew that the following morning we had to get Alison back to Kings Cross Station for her train back to Peterborough, and we had agreed to accompany her back to central London. As with most things to do with the British transport system, our journey was not going to be straightforward. A new Tesco Superstore was being built at Gerrard's Cross in Buckinghamshire, meaning that a purpose-built tunnel was being erected over the Chiltern line tracks. Needless to say, during construction, the partially-built tunnel collapsed on the 30th of June 2005. Nobody was injured, but the line was closed for just over six weeks. This meant that rather than just getting to town, we were going to have to get a taxi 14 miles to the neighbouring town of Maidenhead, which would have taken us into Paddington. For once in our lives, we'd actually planned ahead and intended to catch the circle line from Paddington to King's Cross to get Allison to King's Cross by 8. Allowing time for the see you etc., and getting back to the underground, it would have taken about half an hour, meaning that we would have got back onto the circle line, heading back to Paddington at around 830 meaning that that would have taken us through Edgware Road at approximately 8.50am. But due to the amount of alcohol and the late night, we overslept, meaning that we didn't leave High Wycombe until 8.30am. There's no guarantee that we would have been there at that time, but every year on the 7th of July, we message each other to say how lucky we were that we overslept. Unfortunately for the 52 people who lost their lives, and the hundreds more that have either had life-changing injuries or permanent mental scarring, they were not so lucky. This case, therefore, has a more significant meaning to me and may be hard for me to tell in certain places. This probably goes without saying, but an awful lot of this case is based upon testimony from people who were there on the day so some of it may not be for the faint of heart, so please make sure that you're in the right frame of mind to hear this. Without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of all of those that lost their lives during the events that unfolded on the 7th of July 2005. So let me take you back right to the very beginning. Wednesday the 6th of July 2005, thousands of people are in Trafalgar Square staring at a big screen, waiting for the president of the International Olympic Committee, Jacques Rogge, to make the announcement of the host of the 2012 Olympic Games. London were in the running with Paris, Madrid, Moscow and New York. The French capital had long been the favourite to win, but it was said that London's commitment to leaving a legacy after the Games tipped the balance in their favour. At 12.49pm, the announcement was made. The International Olympic Committee has the honour of announcing that the Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012 are awarded to the city of London. It was the first time that the city would host the Olympic Games, since the Austerity Games, the first ones held after the Second World War in 1948. To the majority of Londoners, this was a dream come true, with the opportunity of seeing the biggest names in sport congregating at the largest multi-sport event in the world the focus of the world would be on London. Unfortunately, 24 hours later, the eyes of the world were on London for tragic reasons. Unbeknownst to the occupants of the city, the tragedy of that day would start in the early hours of the morning, 196 miles away in the city of Leeds. Shortly after 3.45am, three men, 30-year-old Mohammed Sadiq Khan, 22-year-old Shahzad Tanweer, and 18-year-old Hasib Hussain, left Alexander Grove in Leeds in a car rented by Tanweer, bound for Luton in Bedfordshire. At 3.58am, their light blue Nissan Micra was caught on CCTV on High Park Road in Leeds, prior to joining the M1 motorway just by Junction 43. At 4.54am, the micro pulled into Woodall Services on the M1 near Sheffield to fill up with petrol. Tanweir got out of the vehicle and went into the petrol station shop to pay. He was wearing a white t-shirt, dark jacket, white tracksuit bottoms and a baseball cap. He casually bought snacks for the people in the car, and before leaving, looked directly into the CCTV camera. At 5.07am, a red Fiat Brava pulled into the car park at Luton train station. The driver was 19-year-old Jermaine Lindsay. Rather than getting out of the car and heading directly to the train station, he appeared to be waiting for someone. Between the time that Lindsay's Brava arrived and 6.45am, Lindsay is just seen on the station's CCTV system wandering around the car park, entering the station and looking at the departure boards coming out of the station and moving his car to another car parking space. A cycle that he would repeat more than once. At 6.49am, The Nissan Micra arrived at Luton Station's car park and parks next to Lindsay's car. The four men got out of their respective vehicles and headed towards the rear, opening the boots of both of the cars. With very little interaction, they moved a few items between the two cars. They each put a large backpack on before closing the boots. To any observer, they were just four men carrying large festival-style camping equipment. At 7.15am, the four men went through the ticket barriers at Luton train station and made their way to the platform which serviced the Thameslink line, which would take them directly into King's Cross St Pancras in the centre of London. Their train was scheduled to leave at 7.40am. In the interim, CCTV catches the four men casually chatting, occasionally readjusting their backpacks, indicating that whatever was in them was heavy, and too long in one position was making it uncomfortable. On the journey into London, they were acting normally for a group of males together. Despite the fact that the rest of the train was filled with city workers commuting in for their day jobs, Due to it being the start of the summer, and the next stop on the train being Luton Parkway, which serviced Luton Airport, they soon became inconspicuous and they did not do anything to draw any attention to themselves. The train arrived at King's Cross at 8.23am. Slightly delayed from its scheduled arrival time, and the four men disembarked the train and headed towards the entrance of the London Underground system. Having done that walk many times myself in the opposite direction, it's about six or seven minutes, meaning that they would arrive at the Tube station at around 8.30. Once there, the four men split up. So for those of you that are not familiar with the layout of Kings Cross Station, I'm just going to briefly describe it to you As I use that station every day for an interchange up until about four years ago. As you come out of St. Pancras Station into the main open area, you have to take some stairs down into the main ticket hall for the London Underground. For the next bit, it might be handy if you pause the episode and bring up a London tube map to follow me. King's Cross Tube Station services the following lines. The Piccadilly Line, which, if you look at the London Underground tube map, is the navy blue one, which runs between Uxbridge in Middlesex or Heathrow Airport, depending on which branch you take, and Cockfosters in Hertfordshire. Then there's the Victoria Line, which is the sky blue line, running between Brixton and Walthamstow. The Northern Line, which is the black one, which runs from either Edgware or High Barnet in the north of London to Kennington in the south. The Metropolitan Line, which is the maroon-coloured one, runs from Chesham, Amersham or Watford, again depending on the branch that you take, through to Aldgate in the east of London, the operating area for one of London's most notorious killers, Jack the Ripper. The Circle Line, which is the yellow one, running around London in a loop between Hammersmith and Edgware Road, taking in most of Central, East and West London. And finally, the Hammersmith and City Line, which runs between Hammersmith in the West and Barking in the East. To get to the Northern Piccadilly and Victoria Lines, you have to take separate escalators down into the depths of the station from the Ticket Hall, whereas the Met Line, Circle and Hammersmith and City Lines use the same tracks. The four men hugged each other goodbye before Khan went and boarded the westbound Circle Line train towards Hammersmith. Tanweir boarded an eastbound Circle Line train towards Edgware Road via Liverpool Street and Lindsay, a southbound Piccadilly Line train towards Heathrow. Hussain also appeared to walk towards the Piccadilly Line entrance. Just before 9am, the emergency services call centres started receiving some strange calls from alarmed Transport for London workers. I've had a report that there was an explosion at Liverpool Street and Edgware Road. Uh, We've we've had a report of a bang west of Edgware Road I don't know anything about Liverpool Street. I'm the supervisor at Allgate. We've just had a big explosion. There appears to be something ahead of the train in the track. We've evacuated. <laughs> right, just can you give us some, um, um, some brief details? You're, um, wh- where's the train? OK, the train is in Platform 2. <laughs> platform 2? It's train number 447. We've lost signals in the Tower Hill area and the Whitechapel area. So it could be an HT main cable. Yeah. It looks like a HT cable, blue. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it looks as if a train well, trains come off the road, edge of a road, net and got into the tunnel wall, and taken some HT main cables down or something something like that description. Right. So, then, maybe that's called some sort of overload or whatever, and sort of, you know, had a knock-on effect elsewhere. So they're not bombs. No. It's not believed to be terrorist-related. Uh, high voltage cable went in the Liverpool Street area. Right. That's where it's caused the bang. Right. As is usual, when you have an expl—when you have a train hit the tunnel, people hear an explosion. It is not an explosion. explosion. It's just the actual um, hit the tunnel wall, yeah? Yeah. Kind of it. Alright, it's not what Paul's story told me, so... Um, what did he say? It's an explosion of train fatalities. Well, there may be fatalities. We don't know anything about that. That's a story right. finally... Okay, alright, I, yeah. I know where you're coming from, mate. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Tell him, mate. As you can hear from that clip, the initial reports that were coming through was that a train had derailed at Edgware Road station on the circle line which had caused the train at some speed to crash into the wall of the tunnel. You hear the engineer talking about HT cables. The entire London Underground tube network is run on electricity. 630 volts to be precise runs through the third track. The one if you are in London and look at the tracks, it's always the most shiny. High-tension cables run throughout the tunnels, which can carry up to 1,000 volts of current. The theory was that the derailment meant that the train had cut through the wire, causing a loud bang or potentially an electrical explosion. Just to give you a comparison... Have you ever overcooked something in your microwave for too long, causing the bugger to go bang? Imagine that tenfold and reverberating around old Victorian stone tunnels. It was an interesting work in theory. As time went on, however, the calls started to suggest that something more serious was unfolding. You might get some more information. From other sources, to be honest, it's, it looks like... It's it could, a major one, is it? it? It could be serious, we're not too sure yet, to it's extent. Right, well, we'll just go with what we got at the moment. Okay, if I, if I can keep you updated, I will, but it could get a bit too uh, hairy. There's been one explosion on near, or under a train at Liverpool Street on the Met. That's... But, but, it also, we've lost signals in the Tower Hill area. We have thick smoke coming from the tunnel. We have customers on the track. On, to, on the track? Yeah. Train 204 is on the track between us and Liverpool Street. They are detraining themselves, I've been advised. We're trying to get down to the system, but the smoke is really heavy. Okay. We need the fire brigade, I believe. Yep, all right. We'll get them along, yeah? Okay, thank you. We'll send them to you and Liverpool Street, okay? okay. Well, there was a really loud bang, but there's somebody under it there. Let's listen. There, there us, is definitely is, someone under it, yeah? definitely someone under it. We've got an um, ambulance now on the way. Yeah, you? ambulance and ERU are on the way. Right. Uh, we've got we, a report of another explosion at Liverpool Street as well. But that's what we're thinking, you know, is that terrorist incident. Yeah. The bang, the bang I was up in Edgeware House, it was terrific, I'll tell you. I yeah. oh, thought, what the hell was that? It definitely looks like an explosion, yeah? Something's gone badly wrong down there, and um, we really don't know at the moment. It a loud bang. What was going on? at Liverpool Street and Edgware Road. There were also reports coming in of an incident between King's Cross and Russell Square on the Piccadilly line. This is when, as you will hear from the next call, the decision was made to shut down the entire tube network, effectively grinding London to a halt at the tail end of rush hour. We need ambulances and water to Russell's, uh, to yeah. King's Cross. I understand what you're uh, saying. And Russell Square. Yeah, we'll get what we can to you. OK. And, King, and, and Russell Square's a priority, according to Stuart Howard. I, I've got to get the rest of that off him, OK? Russell Square, King's Cross. Yeah, but with Russell Square as oh, a priority, like we're going to have it as a major incident, so we'll get ambulances to you wherever I can, OK? OK, thanks, mate. Code Amber the whole network. We're going to stop yeah. the whole network. All right, darling, no, do no, no. Code Amber, get them into the stage. Yes. Yeah. I stand by. Yeah, that's all we're going to do. Go. They're still desperately waiting for emergency services. We've got two major... Yeah, the, the emergency services have declared they're on their way down there. Um, we're issuing a system-wide Code Amber. The first explosion took place at 8.50am on the eastbound Circle Line train, number 204, travelling from London-Liverpool Street to Allgate Station which had been ridden by Shahzad Tanweer. Within one minute of that, the second explosion took place on the Circle Line train, number 216, travelling westbound from Edgware Road to Paddington. This was the one that Mohammed Sadiq Khan was a passenger on. The third explosion occurred again approximately two minutes later, on the southbound Piccadilly Line train number 311 between Kings Cross and Russell Square. This was the train that Jermaine Lindsay was a passenger on. All three men perished in their respective locations. So I'm going to look at these now in order. Tan Weir had boarded the Circle Line train at Kings Cross and his journey would have taken him through Farringdon, Barbican, Moorgate and Liverpool Street stations. At 8.50am, CCTV images show the eastbound platform at Liverpool Street with the Circle Line train alongside it. The images show commuters rushing to get on the train, trying to beat the sliding doors. Some get on, some just miss it and others are trying to negotiate the busy platform and the endless hazards of people stopping in everyone's way to look at maps. The train pulls out of the station. Seconds later, smoke billows from the tunnel that the train has just entered. There is a shock and confusion on the platform as people make for the exits. The first 999 call in relation to this was made to the British Transport Police by a member of London Underground staff at 8.51am, reporting a loud bang and dust in the air. At the same time, the London Ambulance Service received a call to attend Liverpool Street Station. The London Fire Brigade was called to a fire and explosion at Allgate at 8.56am and four units, including a fire rescue unit, were deployed a minute later. Fire rescue units provide specialist assistance to firefighters at the scene, such as rescue cutting equipment and protective gas-tight suits. The first fire engines arrived at Aldgate at 9am, and the London Fire Brigade declared a major incident at 5 past 9am, 15 minutes after the explosion. The first British Transport Police officer arrived at the scene at 8.55am and reported building shock and smoke issuing from the tunnel with no evidence of structural damage. At 8.58am, the British Transport Police had identified the site of the incident in the tunnel between Allgate and Liverpool Street, but had not discovered anyone injured at that point. The power to the track was cut off. At 9.01am, the British Transport Police requested attendance of the London Ambulance Service, and described three to four walking wounded. By 9.07, there was reportedly 25 wounded, some of which were hurt badly. At 9.08am, the British Transport Police at the scene reported that there had been a train accident and declared a major incident. Two minutes later, the City of London Police recognised that there had been an explosion caused by a bomb and declared a major incident. At 9.19am, the British Transport Police formally requested the assistance of the Metropolitan Police Service which was the lead police service in the event of a major or catastrophic incident, even if it takes place within the jurisdiction of the City of London Police or the British Transport Police. The Metropolitan Police were in fact already aware of the incident and their first officers arrived at the scene at 9.20am. Tanweir was standing towards the back of the second carriage from the front of the train by the right-hand set of double doors. The carriage layouts used to be bench seats along the sides of the train with an area down the middle for standing room only. Compared to the modern-day trains that there are today, where all of the carriages are open plan, each carriage was its own individual entity. Martine Wright spoke to the Guardian newspaper on the 10-year anniversary. I've met Martine when she gave a speech at a work conference I attended, and she told this story in person, and as you can imagine, it was incredibly moving. I quote, My last working memory before 7-7 was jumping up and down in the office in front of a big screen. On the 6th of July, London had won its bid to host the Olympics and we went out to celebrate. The next day, I was late. I'd hit the snooze button and when I got to the Tube, I was unable to take my usual route because of signal failure on the Northern Line. I've always hated Circle Line trains. Every Londoner knows that you have to wait ages for one but I remember rushing down the escalator at Moorgate just as one pulled in and thinking what a result. I jumped on the first carriage that I got to and found my usual seat by the door. I've opened my newspaper and was reading about the Olympics, thinking I've got to get tickets to this, just as the bomb went off. It was a big white flash in front of my eyes. I didn't hear any sound. But I felt like I was in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, and I'd been hit by a frying pan. I could see that there weren't any seats anymore. We were in the black environment with screams and smells. When I looked up, one of my Adidas trainers was on the ceiling. When I looked down, the end of the train had crumbled into my legs. It's amazing how the body deals with things. I don't recall the pain. I thought I'd passed out by this stage. But later, a fireman told me, Martin, you were conscious the whole time we were cutting you out of the train. You were screaming. Seven people, however, were less fortunate. Lee Patrick Baisden was born on the 23rd of September 1970 embarking in Essex. He resided in Hornchurch in the county of Essex. His day started off like any other. Lee worked as an accountant for the London Fire Service and his office was based in Westminster. Outside of work, he would care for his mother who was a widow and had multiple sclerosis. He had been in a relationship with his partner Paul Grumman for three years and the couple were planning a trip to Greece. He was planning to get married to Paul but had not asked him yet. Lee's journey every day took him from Romford in Essex to Liverpool Street Station before taking the eastbound Circle Line train round to Westminster Underground Station. The morning of the 7th of July was no different. Lee boarded the train at 8.49am, one hour later than usual, and got on to the second carriage, going and standing by the right-hand side double doors. Lee, unfortunately, was the closest person to Tan Weir when the blast went off. He did not survive the blast, and it is believed that he was killed instantly. Richard Martin Gray was born on the 31st of May 1964, in Bradford-upon-Avon in the county of Wiltshire. Richard and his wife Louise met when she was 15, at the hotel where she had a part-time job serving breakfasts. They moved in together the following year, and were married on the 30th of March 1991. The couple had two children, Adam and Ruby but his family stated he was rarely happier than when he was playing field hockey in the city of Ipswich where he now lived. He had helped set up Ipswich and East Suffolk hockey club in 1986. As a member of the club's 3rd or 4th 11s, he would be regarded as a pacey midfielder or a forward with an eye for goal. He worked at the Chartered Accountants' F.W. Smith Riches which was based in Whitehall which was only a couple of minutes walk from Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square. He got up at 6am as he always did before watching the news on the television for an hour. He left home at 7.15am dressed for work and carrying his briefcase. He made his way to Liverpool Street Station from Ipswich and then made his way to the underground station to continue his journey to embankment. As indicated by his position on the train, where he was standing, something which was drawn up after collating witness statements, it appeared as though he was one of the people who had only just made the 849 train out of Liverpool Street. He was standing by the left side double doors, the ones which would have opened to let passengers on and off. Richard was killed by the initial blast, the force of which threw him from the train and onto the tracks below. Standing next to Richard was 41-year-old Philip Duckworth, an investment banker who was lucky to survive despite his injuries. Ladies and gentlemen, As I said at the start, not all of the testimony is comfortable to hear. Mr Duckworth boarded a train from his hometown of St Albans at 7.38am, the service getting into London Farringdon at around 832 From there, he continued his journey onto the Circle Line towards Allgate. Mr Duckworth, however, did not know how closely he was going to be linked all day to what was about to happen, because unbeknownst to him, the Thameslink train which he had caught into the city had come from Luton. His delayed service before stopping off at Farringdon had stopped at King's Cross St Pancras. The train he had travelled to London on had also carried the man who was about three metres away from him, who detonated the explosion on the tube train he was now on. Mr Duckworth had been preparing to exit the train at Allgate, so he stood facing the exit doors as the train left Liverpool Street Station. The detonation threw him from the train onto the tracks below. Mr Duckworth recalled at the later inquest. I quote. After that I woke up, in the very loosest sense of the word, on the rails, and I had the fleeting thought at the time, I would fallen out of the train, and it was just me and the train had sort of gone, and I was sort of left on the tracks, that's how it felt. And then I think I couldn't breathe and it was very difficult to sort of come out of it. I think I may be sort of blacked out again at that point. I was aware of being very uncomfortable, I had a rail sort of under the back of my legs. All I could think about was I wanted to get to Aldgate Station, a sort of ludicrous idea But I could see the station in the distance, and I could see a tube train. It seemed quite a long way away, but it was quite dark and indistinct, but those were the only lights. I wasn't really aware of any people around me. It sounded very sort of quiet and muffled, and probably a little bit smoky, but I was just thinking about how I could get onto the platform. So eventually I tried to sort of get up. It was very difficult but I eventually managed to get to my knees and then I got to my feet and I sort of staggered over to the wall of the tube and put my hands on the wall to sort of catch my breath. I just couldn't breathe. It felt like being winded, you know, really badly winded. I just remember some guys went past. I can't remember how many of them there were, but there was a guy with a torch, and I think they sort of looked down and said, oh no, this one's gone, and then sort of moved on. But at that point, I was like, no, I'm not. Hang on a second, you know, I'm not gone. And then that's when I sort of forced myself to my knees and got up. He then spoke of the injury that he obtained. I've lost my left eye. I've got a prosthetic eye in at the moment, which by all accounts it looks very realistic. I'm quite pleased with that. It was a fragment of the bomber's shin bone that went into my eye and, I mean, I wasn't aware of this at all, but that's what made me blind in my eye. Standing next to Mr Duckworth was Richard Ellery. Richard James Ellery was born on the 19th of April 1984, in the Shirley area of Southampton in Hampshire. He was the eldest of three brothers. He attended Wordsworth Infant School, Shirley Junior School, Bellymore Secondary School, and Taunton's College. After leaving school at 18, he found jobs in retail, at a mortgage company office, and in the building industry. He was once keen to become a plasterer and worked on the family house when it was improved in 2003. In March 2005, he left the family home to move with two school friends into Ipswich and found work at Jessop's photograph shop. He enjoyed his new job and used to return to his flatmates enthused about all of the latest gadgets. Going from part-time to full-time, Richard was booked onto a training course at the High Street Kensington store. He had told his parents that he intended to leave his house at 6am to catch the train from Ipswich to London Liverpool Street. But being a typical youngster, he overslept until 6.30am, meaning that he arrived in London at about 830 He texted his mum to tell her that he had arrived, and made his way to the underground. He did not make it to his training session and passed away in the blast. The fourth victim was standing next to Richard. I will post a police note of where everyone was standing on the Facebook page after this episode. Bernadette Chacha was born on the 15th of December 1974 in Rome, Italy and she was the eldest of three sisters Bernadetta moved to the UK in 1995 and initially worked as an au pair for a family in Gravesend, Kent Jonathan Clay whose children Birdie and Megan she cared for told the BBC that she was a funny, lovely, elegant and very intelligent young woman Our children could count in Italian before they could count in English. Megan has been an accomplished pasta cook since the age of three, he said. Bernadetta later worked in bars and restaurants before moving into publishing at the Financial Times and eventually at Pearson Publishing and DK Publishing. She had been studying for a foundation degree in computer sciences at Burbeck College, and was awaiting the results of her final exam. She now lived in Norwich, in Norfolk, and was due to marry her fiancé, Fiaz Batty, on the 11th of September 2005. That morning, she travelled down to Liverpool Street and was making her way to the Strand via Temple tube station, when the blast went off. Once again, she suffered such devastating injuries, she died at the scene. Her body though, like many others, was unfortunately identifiable straight away, from the blast, and out of respect I want to leave it at that. Her fiancé spent the following days in London, as he walked the streets with a homemade missing persons poster, but all hope that he had of finding her diminished day by day, until her death was finally confirmed on the 16th of July. Her fiancé said about her that she was strong and independent and she loved to travel and socialize. We hadn't had the chance to travel together and the honeymoon was going to be our first trip. We planned to go to Sardinia and Corsica. It was going to be the start of a wonderful married life together. Bernadetta's body was flown to Italy for her funeral and she was buried in Rome in her wedding dress. For the occasion, the council put posters around the city saying, Bernadetta, Roma tia abbraccia. Bernadetta, Rome hugs you. The fifth victim of the Liverpool Street to Allgate attack was Anne Moffat. Anne was born on the 25th of December 1956 in Lanark in Scotland. As an 18-year-old, she joined the Girl Guides as it was then known. And in later years, Rose to be the head of marketing and communications. She studied art at college and began her career at the Girl Guides as a graphic designer, the first of many roles during her 20 years at the organization. A few days before the bombings, she had been at the Hampton Court Flower Show promoting a new rose named in honor of the Brownies' 90th birthday. Outside of work, she loved architecture, sculpture and gardening as well as socialising. She was a strong-minded and determined person, but had a close network of friends, her brother told the later inquest. Everyone who knew Anne respected her qualities of honesty and integrity. In her handbag on the day that she died, was a booklet about the Make Poverty History campaign. Anne was living in Old Harlow in Essex, and was heading to her office in Buckingham Palace Road, which is in the area of Victoria. She was also standing when the blast happened, and is believed to have died instantly. The sixth victim was Fiona Stevenson. Fiona Georgina Stevenson was born on the 22nd of June, 1976 in Crewe, Cheshire. In 1986, she moved with her parents, Ivan and EMA, and younger sister Andrea, to Little Badu in Essex. Fiona went to Sussex University where she studied law, and then took a gap year working for several organisations, including the Medical Defence Union in Paris. She joined the North London firm of Galbeth Branley in 1999 as a trainee solicitor, and after qualification in 2001, worked mainly on criminal cases. She also represented clients at mental health tribunals, and early in her career was said to have felt great pride in preparing a judicial review and successful appeal at the Court of Appeals. Fiona joined Raynald Dawson in 2003. There she worked as a duty solicitor in court and in police stations and became involved in the firm's main area of expertise, representing clients in fraud and extradition cases and undertook regulatory work spurred on by her desire to apply these skills in different ways, Fiona took a four month unpaid sabbatical to Belize in 2005. As a volunteer for challenges worldwide, she worked with the government to develop a staff training manual for childcare proceedings there. This opportunity meant that she could also indulge in her passion for diving and she completed two qualifications and a dive in the Blue Hole whilst in Belize. She also completed the 180 mile long Ruta Maya four day kayak race and arriving back in the UK in May 2005, announced that her next project was to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. She left her home in Barbican and walked to the tube station. She was due in court at Hammersmith Magistrates Court and was running slightly late. Fiona survived the initial explosion, but her injuries were too severe and she died whilst being given first aid and being comforted by other passengers. The final fatality of the Liverpool Street to Allgate bombing was Carrie Taylor. Carrie was born on the 28th of May 1981 in Sidcup, Kent. In 1985, she moved with her parents and older brother Simon to Billericay in Essex. There, she attended Brightside Primary School and Mayflower High School, where she took A-levels in history, sociology, and theatre studies. Carrie took up drama at the age of 15, becoming more outgoing and she took the lead role in a school play and her family often went to the theatre together. She went on to study drama and theatre at the Royal Holloway University in West London, graduating in 2002 with a 2-1. While at university, she directed an Agatha Christie play and began working part-time for the Royal Shakespeare Company. She later worked at the English National Opera, where there is now a plaque in her memory in the foyer. She lived in the halls of residence, and then in a house with friends, but would return home every weekend. In January 2005, Carrie became a finance officer at the Royal Society of Arts in the Strand, and was delighted to have been offered the permanent position there on the 4th of July working with a fellowship team. Carrie survived the initial blast, but she had significant spinal and head injuries. Geraldine Quagbear, a doctor who survived the bomb attack at Liverpool Street, described how she cradled Carrie in her arms to comfort her. It is believed that Carrie succumbed to her injuries about an hour later. Until now, we have solely focused on the carriage where the bomb exploded and have not considered those who were further down the train, some of whom were completely oblivious as to what was going on at the front until they were made to leave the carriage. To end this week's episode, I'm going to let the words of a man only known as Michael explain to you what happened. Listening to Michael's evidence which he gave at the subsequent inquest. His description of events really brings home the sheer horror of the scene. I quote My normal journey to work takes me on the Hammersmith and City line to Liverpool Street Station. I always catch the second carriage. That morning I had a meeting near Tower Hill so instead of walking away from Liverpool Street Station I got off and waited for the Circle Line train. I had been at the front of the second carriage on the Hammersmith and City line, so I walked down to about midway in the second carriage. The train came in after about five minutes, and I thought I was going to be on time for my meeting. I walked down a little bit further, and attempted to get on the rear doors of the second carriage which I later found out was where the bomber was standing. I waited for people to come off, and there were a lot of people coming off that morning. Being a tube traveller, I thought, a lot of people getting off, that means that there's going to be space on that carriage. Fortunately, something changed in my mind, and I walked down to the next set of doors which took me to the front of the third carriage. I know that decision saved my life that day. That is why I feel particularly lucky. I got on the third carriage and stood at the front. I stood in the middle with my hand on the central bar. It was not long after we pulled out of Liverpool Street Station that reality changed. I saw the flash, the orange yellow light, and what appeared to be silver streaks, which I think was some of the glass coming across, and what I can describe as a rushing sound. There was no bang I heard, it was just a lot of noise. I had been twisted and thrown down to the ground. About halfway down to the ground, my brain clicked in and said that's a bomb. You then think you're going to die. When I hit the ground, it was all dark and silent, and I thought about dying. I put my hand to my face and I felt the blood, and I thought, it's not over yet, at which time the tunnel lights came on and visibility was awful in our carriage. There was panic on our carriage, there was lots of screaming. A few of us were telling people to calm down, which they did very quickly. When we had calm in our carriage, all we could hear were the screams coming from the next carriage, which looked totally black. I do not want to go into too much detail, but there were people trapped, screams coming from people who were dying and seriously injured are very different to those that are panicked they live with me today the floor was covered in glass there was glass everywhere I had been hit side on and there was blood from my face and my neck I thought I was very seriously injured at this stage I thought I was going to pass out We saw one of the drivers, the orange glow of his coat from outside come to the door. They could not part the doors more than a few inches. The doors wouldn't budge. We then started to feel trapped and worried about fire. We must have sat there for ten minutes plus, waiting to be rescued. And then the decision went that we were going to walk down the middle of the train to the rear to get off. I took the guys who had been hit full in the face and were covered in blood and I shouted for people to let them through. Good British London mentality, people got out of the way further down the carriage to let them through. I just remember their faces, the double take as they looked around with shock at their faces. A few people further down tried to lift the panels of the floor up and warned us not to trip over them. They had obviously looked for routes to escape. I found out from one of the drivers at the hospital afterwards that the doors would not open because the electrics and the pneumatics had been severed. Our only means of escape was to get off the rear of the train which we did. The drivers, all credit to them, it was our driver I believe and certainly a driver from an oncoming train who was not caught up in the explosion, but saw it and came to help. They helped us off the back of the train, no criticism for them, but the decision was made to walk to Allgate station, which meant that we had to walk past the train. I subsequently found out that those in the rear carriages did not even know that there had been an explosion. They had no idea what they were going to see in a matter of seconds. As we walked further up the track, you could see the debris that had fallen and the bodies on the track. None of them were being assisted. Two were motionless. One was just about showing signs of movement. I did not know until afterwards a girl, Jennifer, contacted me afterwards to say thank you. I asked what for and she said, we had no idea what we were going to see. She said, I started to have a panic attack at that point and you turned round and said, hold my hand, follow me. I had already seen a lot of those sights, but even seeing them again lives in my memory. I do not want to mention names, but she appeared in the press afterwards, and she had lost both her legs. The lady who was on the carriage helping her, I believe was an off-duty policewoman, who had come through from the front carriage. I remember her look. She was holding her head The whole body dynamic looked wrong, the way the lady was lying. She looked very forlornly at me, and she could not do anything. All she could do was hold this lady's head. We walked further on, but personally I wished that I had stayed. I really thought I was badly injured at the time but personally I wished that I had stayed and done what I could. I walked on and I could see gate Station ahead, the lights, firemen on the station. As I got close, three policemen started to gently jog down the track. I walked up onto the platform and apparently I was very polite, but I asked the first group of firemen why they were not down there. There were people dying down there. They would not look at me, they looked at each other. I went to a second group and asked the same thing. I looked back at the first group and I do not know if they had just received an order or my words had motivated them, but they were putting on their kit and leaving the edge of the platform. The second group also could not look at me. I was not a very pretty sight, but I do not think it was that. I walked up the flight of stairs with the other survivors as we streamed out. I asked the third group of firemen and they spoke to me. They said that they were worried about a second explosion. Again, apparently I was very polite. I said, that is fair enough but please could you tell your senior officers that there are people dying down there. They need your help. I then walked through the ticket hall and we were streamed to the left. We could see the firemen trying to lift the heavy equipment over the barriers. We were taken outside and assessed in triage. I was told to sit on the pavement by a paramedic. I said I was not going to sit down in my best suit trousers, but eventually I was persuaded to. We were asked to go across the road to the bus station opposite Aldgate. We were sat on a bus, which sounds very Monty Python-ish, but it freed up the ambulances for those that really needed them. There was a paramedic on board and a doctor joined us at one point. One of the guys who had come out with me had been caught full in the face. He was sitting on his own. He started to lose consciousness and lean forward. I saw one of the senior guys with his lieutenants outside the bus. I went and grabbed him on the shoulder and asked him to get him an ambulance. An excellent response by the time I got back to the bus, the guy was off in an ambulance. The hospital was excellent. We had priority badges or wallets with priority on. They dealt very quickly. I walked into the fracture clinic and there were a couple of people in white coats there. By the time I'd sat down, there was a whole queue of medics in white coats going out of the door. Somewhere along the line, I managed to obtain two of these priority tags, one of which said second priority, and one of which was white and said dead. At which point I used the Mark Twain line of, I think the rumours of my death have been somewhat exaggerated. So that's it for this week. As you can imagine, this is going to be a long one. Coming up during this case, I'll be looking into what happened at Edgware Road and Russell Square. We'll be looking at where Haseeb Hussain had gone and how he eventually detonated the fourth bomb. We'll be looking into what happened with the first responders. We'll be hearing the stories of all of those that tragically lost their lives. We'll be looking into the media's response on the day And that of the nation's leaders. Who were the men who committed this heinous attack and what had motivated them? We'll be hearing about another plot which was foiled by the security services. We'll be looking at the death of Jean Charles de Menezes, the subsequent inquests, as well as some positives that have come out of the aftermath. I hope that you've enjoyed this change of approach, even if the subject matter is slightly different. Please let me know what you think in case I think it's working and I end up losing everyone that normally listens to me. Please remember if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixpod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page. True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also our fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. You can also visit the website, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk. Also a reminder that the podcast is on Patreon, so please come over and support us on www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com or through the Contact Us page on the website. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.